Father, truly this morning we do rejoice. For you are God, our King. And you're a good King. As we've seen as we worked our way through Malachi, you are a powerful King. You are God Almighty. You're a sovereign King who's accomplishing your good purposes for your glory in us and in our world. Father, we pray that even as was just sung as we come to your word this morning, that you would speak, that you would challenge us, that you would renew our hearts, renew our minds, that you would light a fire inside us as we long for your coming, as we look back on your faithfulness. May our response to you be in utter worship. May we fall down. May we worship. May we go. May we tell the world about this King, this God who loves them. He's a just God. He's a merciful God. He's a faithful God. He's a powerful God. And truly, you deserve all the honor and all the worship. My desire is to lift you up this morning. May your spirit work through your word in each one of our hearts and each one of our lives. May you give me boldness to proclaim your truth with authority as I speak your word. May you be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Malachi this morning. Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 7. The older I get, and I'm not very old, <laughs> but what's interesting about, what I found interesting about life is the way that your perspective changes as you get older. One thing that specifically stands out to me that's interesting is, is how you go through the same relationships but from different sides. So for instance, I was once a kid who had a parent. Now I'm a parent who has kids. It's my second time through this parent-child relationship, but I'm going through it now on the other side. And what's interesting is how, depending on which side you're on, your perspective completely changes. I can remember as a kid, not, not this might make my parents sound mean, but I'm not trying to make my parents sound mean. But I remember as a kid often thinking that, that my parents, their goal was to get me in trouble. They were just looking to see me fail. The reality is often, now that I'm a parent, that I don't want my kids to fail. I, I want them to succeed. That's my goal. That's my purpose. As a kid, as a child, a, a rebuke often seems like my parents didn't like me. Why are they rebuking me? Why are they punishing me? And as a parent, I realize they rebuke me because they do love me. In fact, to not rebuke me would be unloving. 
And as you work your way through Malachi, if you have the wrong perspective, you can come away thinking, man, this God is a terrible God. All he's ever doing is rebuking his people. All he's ever doing is dragging them down. I think the proper perspective, as we'll see this morning, is not that this God hates his people, but that this God loves his people. He rebukes them because he loves them. You don't warn someone, you don't rebuke someone you don't care about. That's what we see as we work our way through this passage this morning. This God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. Yet he is a God of justice. As we work our way through this passage, we'll start in verse 17 and we'll see a question. And then as we get into chapter 3, we'll see the answer. And we start here in verse 17, and it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord. He is tired. Again, he's used the illustration several times throughout Malachi to this point of a a parent. I am your father. You are my people. And as a parent, I can can tell you, as a parent of, of four kids who are five and under, really probably just any parent in general, could tell you that there are times when their kids just weary them. They're tiring. There's a time when the the continual questions, answering the same question over and over and over, just gets wearying. With with our kids, being four of them in the ages that they are, not only do I get the same question over and over from one, but then that same question gets asked over and over again from the other three as well. Anything you do, you have to do four times, to be fair. It's wearying. And especially at the moment, one time where we are just really fighting is at bedtime. It just, it, it's tiring. Can I have a drink? Can I go to the bathroom? My blanket's not straight. He's looking at me. Over and over and over. Just constantly. And it's wearying. And as we come to, to, to Malachi 2.17 through 3.7a, this, this passage this morning, what we'll see as we work our way through this is that the people are looking at the evil in their lives and they are blaming it on God. The evil that is in their lives, the evil that they have brought on themselves from their foreign marriages and from their divorces and from their general apathy for God that we've seen in the first two chapters. They're looking at that evil that is around them, evil that they've brought on themselves, and then they are turning to God and they are accusing Him. 
They're calling into question God's faithfulness, God's goodness. And God just starts here in verse 17. He says, I am weary. I am tired of your blame shifting. I am tired of your excuses. We've seen it time and time again through Malachi as, as God will say something and then they'll, they'll return with a question and, and often the questions we're thinking, are you not paying attention? Have you not read your Bible? Do you not see how God provided for you in Exodus? How can you ask these things about God? How can you accuse God in this way? And yet time and time again, they do and God is weary He's weary with their words. And he says, and you've, you've wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, in what way have we wearied you? How? Tell us. Explain to us. How have we wearied you? But God explains, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? The people seem to be growing more bold in their accusations against God. In fact, look what they say here. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's the exact opposite of what God has said, of who God is. He delights in them. He delights in their evil. Where is the God of justice? Where is God's justice? I don't see it. As we mentioned at the very beginning of, of Malachi, there, there's a background to their struggle. There's a background to the way they feel, and that doesn't excuse how they feel. That doesn't excuse these accusations, but it helps us to understand. If you remember, about a hundred years earlier, They'd returned from captivity and they'd, they'd rebuilt the temple and they'd rededicated themselves to God and, and, and God had promised, I am, I am coming. And the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the glory of the past. And, and so they're excited and they're, they're looking forward to this and we've returned from captivity and surely our God, our Messiah is coming and, and they're excited and they're getting back into these sacrifices and they're obeying God. And then 20 years goes by. 40 years. 80 years. 100 years. And where is God? As they look around, evil seems to be flourishing. Evil men seem to be flourishing. And yet their crops are failing. Their houses, their temple is in ruin. Their sacrificial system seems to them to be all a sham. It's not doing anything. It's not accomplishing anything. Where is God? Does He care? Where is the God of justice? Is He even a God of justice? If God is uncaring about justice, as I look around and I see, I see evil flourishing, and if God is uncaring about justice, why should I care about obedience? That's their feeling. 
And in fact, the question here that they are asking, where is the Lord, is almost a question you could phrase it instead, who is the Lord? They're showing that they don't even know who this God is, much less where he is. What we find here is that as at the beginning of Malachi chapter 1, as in the first five verses, they've allowed their opinion of God to be clouded by their present circumstances. They're looking around at their circumstances and they're seeing their crops failing and they're seeing their businesses failing and they're seeing their families falling apart. And then they're looking up and they're saying, where's this God? He says he's powerful. He says he's in control. He says he cares for us. He says he's coming again. And yet I don't see it. Where are you? Are you even who you say you are? What they should be doing is they should be looking to who God tells them that he is. Their first problem is to get their opinion of God from their circumstances rather than from what God has said himself. But instead, like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Eden, begin to wonder, did God really say that? Is this really who God is? Where is this God of justice? I don't see him. I don't see any evidence that he is coming. In fact, I don't see even any evidence that he is, in fact, just. That's their question, and their question sounds a lot more even like an accusation to me. The people of God have grown bold in their complaints against God. And in chapter 3, God answers them, and he answers them not only telling them where he is, but who he is. And we see that right at the beginning, behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You want to know where I am? I am coming. I am still coming as I promised I would. I may not be coming in your timetable or how you want me to, but I am coming. Behold, I send my messenger. What's interesting is that actually in this coming, there's two comings in view, that they didn't realize this at the time. They didn't understand what we do looking back at the first coming and looking forward to the second coming. They were looking forward to just a coming. And in their limited perspective, they didn't understand that God had a grand plan that he was at work in, that he was accomplishing his purposes. That he was coming not just to, to save them from financial ruin, but to save them from their sins. Hold, I send my messenger. We see this in John the Baptist. It's kind of a, 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 actually a type of the greater messenger who will come, Elijah. But John the Baptist comes. Matthew eleven ten. 10. Matthew eleven fourteen. 14. 
In Luke 1.17, we're told that he comes in the spear and the power of Elijah. Later on here in Malachi, in verse, chapter 4, verse 5, we see that, that ultimately Elijah will come as the forerunner to the Savior. Matthew 17, 11-12, Jesus says, Elijah will indeed come. At his second coming, he will have a forerunner, a messenger who will go before him, who will clear, prepare the way. He's coming. I love that. I don't know if this is the way in which it's written, but it's the way that I read it. Behold, I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, comes across to me as sarcastic. They've asked, where is the God of justice? Is he even just? And he says, well, this God you're seeking is coming. Whom you seek, they're not really seeking him. They don't really want to know who this God is. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's coming and he will come suddenly. He will come unexpectedly. Which seems to contradict the fact that he has a messenger that goes before him. And yet he still comes unexpectedly. And yet we see that even with John the Baptist when Christ comes. John went before him, he prepared the way for him, and yet they weren't ready for him. It'll be no different the second time. He will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, the Lord, God himself, is coming. Again, based on verse 17 in this next phrase, I think is sarcastic, and whom you delight. They're taking no delight in God. Because God's not who they want him to be. This God you want to come, he's coming. Behold, he is coming. It is sure. And there's an implication here that he is coming, therefore let this stir you to action, let this stir you to obedience. Get busy, for he's coming is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. You want to know where this God is? He is coming, but He's not coming as you want Him to come. He's coming in justice, for He is a just God. Look at this next phrase here in verse 2. It's interesting, in, in, in the first verse of chapter 3, he is coming, the God in whom you delight. But, verse 2 starts with that little word, but it's not what you expect. This God that you're longing for, he's coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? You, you want him to come, you're longing for him, and yet his coming is not going to be pleasant. Your sin will not be overlooked. They're looking for a God who will come and who will judge their enemies. And the God is saying, no, I'm coming to judge sin. And you, like your enemies, are sinners. The implication here is that no one can endure the day of his coming. No one can stand in his, when he appears. Not just your enemies, you yourself. You have no standing before this righteous God who is coming. 
And yet we see something interesting as the verse goes on. And what we see is this, is that he will come and he will judge because he is a just God. And sin will not go unpunished. But his purpose is not for destruction, but for restoration. Look what the verse says, for no one can endure, no one can stand, for he is like a refiner's fire. Like launderer's soap. Refiner's fire burns away the imperfections of the metal, making it useful, making it strong. Launder or soap, it's a special soap that was used in cloth manufacturing to clean the cloth as they beat it. Neither refining or this launder soap, neither of these are, are, are fun things to go through. One involves burning, one involves beating, and yet the end product is good. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He's coming and it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be necessary. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering and righteousness. Notice that last phrase of verse 3. This is the end to which he's coming. He's coming to refine them, to purify them for this end that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. If you think back to the first two chapters as we worked our way through this, we've seen that their offerings are polluted, their priests are polluted, the people themselves are polluted. Sin has polluted this people beyond recognition. And notice here, as he's talking about purifying, notice that he touches on each one of these. I will purify the sons of Levi. Those polluted priests, I will purify them. Purge them as gold and silver, that they may what? That they may offer to the Lord. Not their polluted offerings, but righteous offerings. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, as we saw in verses 10 to 16, the people who are polluted, even their offerings, them, they will be purified. And it will be pleasant to the Lord. The goal here is not to destroy you. The goal here is not to wipe you out. The goal here is to restore you. He's a just God and he will come in justice and sin will be dealt with. Yet he's a merciful God. He's a merciful God who will deal with your sin. And it will not be an easy process, but he will clean you. He will purify you. He will restore you. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. In the past, when they heeded God's instructions, specifically probably looking back to the patriarchal period when their relationship with God was so close at the very beginning, that's what we're getting back to. When I am your father and you are my son. See the mercy of God even in just his response to them because I think most of us 
if someone were to respond to us as they have responded to accuse us, as they have accused God Almighty, we would just wipe them out and start over. But God loves them. And so God pursues them and God purifies them. He restores them. Verse 5, he then returns still. He's still talking about his justice and I will come. You can be sure of this. I am coming. This is the second time he said for sure, I am coming. I will come near you for judgment. Contrary to your claim that I ignore injustice, that I cause evil to flourish, I am just. And I am coming and I will enact my justice. And I will do it with swiftness. I'll be a swift witness, an expert witness. As with the unfaithful man and his wife in chapter 2, verse 14, where God stands as a witness to this covenant that has been broken, so God will now stand as a witness before his people. They have been unfaithful. And his justice will be swift. When I come, the evidence against them will be, will be indisputable. Justice will come swift and harsh. And yet it will be purposeful to the end that they are restored. It will bring judgment against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers. Those who break God's law, those who go contrary to what God has commanded against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien, those who take advantage of the weak. Those who are contrary to what God has commanded, to what God's character is. He will deal with them. He will deal with their sin because they do not fear me. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They do not fear me. See, the fear of the Lord produces obedience. It produces action in the saints and their disobedience. Their rebellion is evidence of their lack for fear of the Lord. You don't fear me. You don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. If at any point that name of God, the Lord of hosts, is driven home to his people, it should be here. After, produ- after, after pronouncing judgment on them, after saying, I am coming, and my judgment will be swift and it will be just. And he reminds them, just, just for clarity's sake, I am coming. And I am coming as the Lord Almighty. I'm coming as the Lord who controls the armies of heaven. As the Lord of all power, of all might. I am coming. And I'm coming in justice. You ask where I am, I'm coming. You ask who I am, I'm just. But it doesn't stop there. Most people actually divide the passage here and then save verses 6 and 7 to go with the rest of chapter 3. But but as I read it, I think 6 and 7 fit with the beginning of chapter 3. 
I think that verses 6 and 7 are important, both, both for this section and for the next section. We'll actually end in verses 6 and 7 today and start in verses 6 and 7 next week. But, but it's, it's, it ties in perfectly here because God is, is reminding them who he is, but he doesn't stop with just the fact that he is a just God. But look what it goes on to say in verse 6. He's a faithful God, for I am the Lord and I do not change. I am coming and I am coming in justice because this is who I am. I'm a just God. I'm a faithful God. I keep my word. I told you I was coming. I am coming. This is who I am. I've not changed. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Joshua, the God of all these men who have come before you. I am the same God. I am the God who called you as a people. I'm the God who equipped you as a people. I'm the God who raised up kings and prophets. I'm the God who created the world. I'm the God who gave you the law. I'm the God who led you through the Red Sea. I am the God who does not change. The problem is not that I have changed, it's that you have strayed. But the fact that God does not change is good news to them because look, therefore you're not consumed, those sons of Jacob. If I could change just a little bit, you'd be consumed. I would wipe you out. But I don't change. I'm a God of justice, but yet I'm a God of patience. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of mercy. This is what you deserve. If you want pure justice, then, then you will be consumed. But I am faithful to my word and I am merciful. Verse 7, we see that mercy. Because yet from days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinance. You've not kept them. You've, you've, you've never been a people who continually are marked by obedience to me. You're a rebellious people. You're a sinful people. And yet he says this. Return to me. And I will return to you. I think if you're reading this for the first time and, and he's pronounced these judgments and he says, I do not change. And he says, you're people who've, who've never, you have never obeyed me. And you think about the fact that this, this starts with the fact, that this whole section starts with the fact that God says, I am tired. I am worn out. I am sick and tired of your rebellion. And so you expect at the end of verse 7 here for him to say, you've never obeyed me. From the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. Therefore, I am done with you. It is finished. It is over. Go worship those other gods that you want to worship. I will rise up another people. Yet that's not what he says. Yes, I'm tired. Yes, I am worn down from your accusations, from your continual rebellion. But I want to purify you. I want you to return to me, to come home, and I will return to you. What mercy we see here in this passage. What grace that God Almighty would stoop to his people in this way. 
He would forgive them that he would stand ready to accept them and to restore them. Return to me. We come to the conclusion this morning, I don't know that there's any other way to end this passage than for a call to repentance. I think the conclusion here this morning is simply this. He has still not changed. He is still a God who is just. He is still a God who is faithful. He is still a God who is merciful. And He is still a God who is coming again. I think one of the things that that I love about Malachi is how easy it is for us to identify ourselves with the people. They they are longing for the Savior to come. They are longing to see Him. And and all this time has passed, far more time than they ever expected. And they're starting to get apathetic. And they're starting to wonder, where is this God? And here we sit. Over 2,000 years after God, after Christ rose from the dead and He ascended into heaven, He said, I am coming again. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get apathetic. Where is He? He's coming. He's coming because He said He was coming. Don't look at the circumstances around you. Don't grow frustrated because God has not shown up in your timetable. Don't grow frustrated because God is is, is taking you through something in life that you don't want to go through. He's accomplishing His purpose. Don't grow frustrated because things aren't lining up how you want them to line up because they're lining up how God wants them to line up. You're a good God. You're God who is working all things for your purpose, who is transforming you into his image. This passage this morning is a stark call to repentance. And brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. I don't know what this last week held. I don't know what this last month held. I don't know what things you are bottling up inside and you are struggling with. I don't know what is frustrating you. I call you this morning. Return. Return to God. He's a gracious God. He's a God who is full of mercy. He's a faithful God who has not changed still and will not change. So be faithful. Be faithful in the waiting. Be faithful in the trials and the tribulations that God calls you to. Rejoice in them. Realize that He's refining you. Don't allow your circumstances to to affect your view of God. Go to His Word. See what He says about Himself and cling to that.
And then I would ask you this. God says, because they do not fear me. Their lives, their actions show that they don't fear the Lord. And so my question to you this morning would be this. Does your life testify to the fact that you fear the Lord? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to stand up and give a testimony to the whole church. I'm asking you in your heart to be honest with yourself. Does your life testify to the fact that you fear the Lord? So to the Christian this morning, I would say return to God. Be faithful, long for his coming. Fight apathy. God hasn't changed. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I would implore you with this truth that he is coming. And he is just. And if he comes this afternoon and tonight you find yourself standing before him, what will be your plea? I was a good person. You're not a good person. The Bible says for all have sins and that sin separates us from God. The Bible tells us that the penalty for sin is death. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And my only plea is not my righteousness, it's His righteousness. It's Christ who, who died for me. Because you see, this, 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 this Messiah that they're looking for, He did come. He came in Jesus Christ, the God-man. He died on the cross. He bore our sin. He took our punishment and He offers life to all who believe. So if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I would caution you, He is coming again. And He's coming in justice to judge the world. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. He died for you. Yes, he's a God of justice and power, but he's also a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness. And he's a good God. I would implore you this morning, turn to him. 